brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. We'll be reading and looking at verses 1 to 10, but specifically verses 3 to 6 this morning. As you're doing that, just a reminder too, next week we'll have a lunch for college students after the service down at the Hatsey building. Uh, and you do not need to bring a bulletin to get in, so no proof of actually being at church, but we would welcome you and your roommates, friends that you'd like to invite to join us. Uh, it'll be a good time. Before I read this, just a little bit of a scripture intro, just to kind of understand the setting here as we begin this new series on the Sermon of the Mountain. We won't read the entire sermon here, obviously, uh, this morning, but um, it's important just to keep in mind, and I'll be reminding us of this. Jesus probably would have given a version of this sermon at many different times. Uh, maybe a go-to is uh, if, you, you, if you know of, or if you're a pastor in ministry, you have one of your top two or three best sermons in your back pocket that you kind of lead with at times if you're asked to go uh, preach somewhere on the fly. I'm not saying this is exactly what that was, but it's probably something similar to that that he gave over and over again. And what's just as important about that, because that would, that would indicate what's most important to him about some of the things he wanted to communicate, is to who did he want to communicate these things to? And the who is his disciples, which means that he is speaking to Christians, or at least those who have said, Jesus, I want to follow you. And that's going to be important for us as we continue this fall to navigate this series. Now, what is this sermon about? Well, we'll touch more on this next week, but what, the way I want you to think about this in some respects is the way that you might think about a platform of somebody running for office. When a candidate announces his or her uh, you know, candidacy, what usually follows is their platform. This is what I'm going to do. If I'm in charge, this is what my world would look like. If I were king, this is what my kingdom would look like. And so in the similar vein, this is sort of what Jesus is doing. However, Jesus is not running for office. <laughs> Jesus is not a candidate. But he is establishing a kingdom here. And the Sermon on the Mount is his platform, so to speak, for what his kingdom is like. In other words, what what, if, if he were in charge, this is what his kingdom would be like. And where he begins is actually who this kingdom is for. Okay? And that's where we begin this morning. It's who this kingdom is for. It's who this kingdom belongs before we get to the what. And that's where we're going to be this morning and tomorrow or next Sunday as well. So with that... Having that in mind, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word found in Matthew chapter 5, and I'll read verses 1 to 9 for us. Beginning in verse 1, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be 
they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Amen. Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would open our eyes and our ears, that we would see and hear things otherwise we could not, that by your Spirit that you would extend grace to us to grow and to learn, to know more about you and likewise more about ourselves, that we would then see you with different eyes and understand your love for us even more. Would you do this for your glory alone, we pray. Amen. For about 17 years now, uh, our family's had a tradition of watching Home Alone on Christmas Eve. No, this is not a Christmas illustration, although I did hear this week that since it's September, you, you are allowed to use Christmas illustrations and sermons, but that's not what this is. Um, I, I grew up loving the movie Home Alone. Maybe you guys like it too. My kids now uh, love the tradition that we have set up in our family. And, um, you know, growing up and seeing this uh, movie several times as a kid, you know, you identify with Kevin. But as you become a parent, and as you watch it at least a hundred different times, you begin to notice different characters in this movie. And uh, as a parent, I have begun to identify way more with these parents in the movie than I ever did with Kevin. Um, I, I, you know, I'll just leave it at that. And it's actually what makes the movie so good. And this is one of the reasons John Hughes is amazing. But I want to zero in on Kate McAllister. This is Kevin's mom. This is Kathleen O'Hara. She does a phenomenal job because she sells so well the desperation and the need of her trying to get back to her eight-year-old son. And we've all seen the scenes. I could memorize them, or I could, you know, let you know every word of her of, of these scenes for her. Um, beginning uh, when she's in France, trying to get to Dallas, and she's talking uh, to our good friends Ed and Irene, uh, and trying to negotiate a way for them to give them their tickets. Right, and then she's offering uh, $500 in traveler's checks. She's offering a ring. She's offering a watch. There's even a pocket translator, which nobody in here knows what that is anymore nor they want this, right? And, you know, at the end there, as, as she's negotiating with it, I, Irene just sort of has this mother-to-mother moment and, 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 you know, gives into the situation. And, and here we begin this sort of journey for mom uh, getting back to her son, but this is not where it's gonna end, is it, right? She's gonna get to Dallas, and then from Dallas, she's gonna get derailed, and she's gonna end up in um, Scranton, Pennsylvania, of all places. <sighs> And in this one scene in the airport, you see the need and desperation come out even more. The self-acknowledgement of just, I have nowhere else to run, as she stares down a ticket agent and literally says, like, if I have to get out on your runway and hitchhike, if I have to give away everything that I have just to get back to my son, I'll do it. And what's interesting after watching the movie a hundred times is like, this is actually the point of the movie where hope arrives. In the midst of her desperation, in the midst of her need. Now it doesn't arrive in a seat on a plane opening up to go directly to O'Hare Airport. It arrives in the form of the lead to uh, the Kenosha Kickers polka band played by John Candy who can't not hear all that's going on in the airport because she is being so loud and she is so uh, over, you know, any type of uh, resistance that's coming her way. She wants everybody to know what, what the problem is. 
To which he then responds, hey, we're actually trying to get to Chicago. Well, actually, they're going north to Milwaukee. Uh, they'd be happy to take her. But the only way that she can get there is if she ends up and she rides with them in the back of a U-Haul. And you know what? She's just desperate enough to do it. And as we know, right, this is how the movie ends. This is how she actually gets back to her eight-year-old son. Now, back to, to me, the parent watching this, I literally watch this every, every Christmas Eve as if I've never seen it before and ask myself, would I do that? Would I be that needy and desperate to, to get in the back of a U-Haul with some polka guys and ride, and I did the math, 704 miles from Scranton, Pennsylvania to Chicago, Illinois, just to see and rescue my child. I probably would be thinking they can do one more day without me. We'll just take the next flight out tomorrow. But that's not what Kate McAllister does. She gets in the U-Haul, and part of her character and the way she sells her need and desperation, the way she'll do everything, is why we as spectators forget the fact that her and her husband left their eight-year-old on their European trip. When we begin the Sermon on the Mount here, as we do, uh, Jesus chooses to start the sermon in an interesting way. He does not get into uh, what the kingdom looks like. He begins the sermon with who comes into this kingdom. And he starts it with blessing, which is also worth noting. He, blessed are those who are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Those are the ones who get this kingdom. And it's as if he's saying, if I were in charge, right, this is, this is what it would look like. This is what people, this is what my kingdom would, would look like. But more importantly, this is who my kingdom would belong to. And, and, and what is it that, 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 that characterizes who receives Jesus' kingdom? It's those who are able to express their need, their desperation, their willingness, as it will, were to do anything, even get in the back of a U-Haul and drive 704 miles just to get to where they want to go. It is to acknowledge that need to God that the ones who do that belongs the kingdom of God. And that's all we're going to look at this morning. This is where Jesus starts. This is where we're starting the good news is, is we're going to come back to this over and over, which is need. Do you need this? Do you need him? Because the kingdom of God belongs to those who can admit their need. And for those who can't admit it, this kingdom is available to everyone. My three points this morning are really just the three characteristics or virtues, we might say, for those who are blessed in this sermon, who belong to Jesus' kingdom, the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek, right? So very simple, three points, those three, first three uh, virtues or characteristics. And uh, just in case, you know, yeah, if you're taking notes, these are uh, characteristics of need, virtues of need. Next week, we'll see the other three, which are characteristics of action. But as we get into this, uh, a, few, a few things to note. Verses 1 to 9, as we talked about, these included these seven blessed statements that are, are often referred to as the Beatitudes. You might have heard that before. 
And they get this name because the word for, 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 uh, for happy or blessedness in the Latin is beatitudo. Somebody will correct me about that pronunciation later, I'm sure. But this word blessed means happiness. Um, but it's not necessarily the, the happiness that, that we might think of. This word means wholeness or integrity in the face of all that, that life has to offer. And Jesus is saying that happiness, real happiness actually, comes from mature character. Not in experiences or material things. We'll come back to that a lot this fall. But what I want you to understand this morning, and certainly next week, but this morning, is that these Beatitudes function as a doorway of sorts to the entire sermon as a whole. And what that means is, one, if we don't understand how these attitudes, how these virtues work, they're not just random things that Jesus is saying, we'll actually miss the sermon completely. But two, as we go through the sermon, we actually always come back to these virtues. Because what these attitudes or what these virtues do of need is they lead us back to the one who can supply that need. They lead us back to Jesus, which is the whole point. They lead us back to our king and his kingdom, which he's going to speak of later. So let's continue here then. Two things about these Beatitudes before we get started. Um, one, all of these Beatitudes um, are things that Christians must embody. All of these Beatitudes are things that Christians embody. They are characteristics that all of us have. In other words, we don't look at this list here. We don't think, okay, well, I really like the peacemaker one. I'm really good at that. I'm not so good at the mercy one, so I'll, I'll skimp on that one. No, Jesus' intention is that all Christians are to embody these characteristics. Second, though, and perhaps, perhaps more important, none of these characteristics, friends, are natural. None of these characteristics are natural. No one shows up with these virtues in the way that they are to be lived out in Jesus' kingdom. We might have aspects of them in our lives, but nobody shows up here this morning uh, naturally embodying these things. And I think it's important to start there, especially as we begin a new series, especially if you're a visitor here this morning, like knowing that that brings everybody in here on the same playing field. That there aren't people in this room who have come in here and you know what, it's like, I have really, really done well with my poverty of spirit. And so they sit on this side of the room. Well, thank you for laughing at that. Right, right. That's not how this works. And so part of what we're going to do as we come in here this fall is we're going to be on the same page together. None of us show up with these things. And this gets back to the beginning of what this sermon is about. Why? Because we are people, we are needy people. We need these things, and our king supplies them. And that's what Jesus is going to do. So with that, let's go to that first one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So much of what Jesus says in these attitudes or these characteristics is what we would call countercultural. Meaning, and you'll notice this, that, that, that this is the opposite of what many would consider virtue in this day and age. You would never say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor got nothing in that day and age. Right? The poor were not even considered. The poor were, were, were the most marginalized people group. They didn't bring anything to the table. How in the world would, would we surround or, or, or develop a kingdom around them, as, as, as it were? To be poor in spirit... As Jesus continues, though, what does this mean? Is to have poverty of spirit. It is to lack something. 
Not just physically, though, but spiritually speaking, it is to lack certain resources within yourself to meet God's expectation. And Jesus is saying that those who know that they lack something physically, but also spiritually speaking, are not just happy, but to them belongs the kingdom of God. This would have been countercultural, as I said, in Jesus' day and age. But why is that? Because self-acknowledged weakness, spiritually speaking, is how one enters Jesus' kingdom. Jesus is saying, only those who recognize their poverty of spirit, their need for me, get the kingdom of God. It is to say, I may have everything that this world has to offer. I might have wealth. I might have uh, intellect. I might have looks, charisma. I might have a, a great family tree, whatever that would mean for you. You can have all of these things, but none of it is able to help you, spiritually speaking, as it pertains to saving oneself or dealing with the sin that the Bible describes as separating you from God and thus his kingdom. Because what you and I need is a righteousness before God. It's a big word. We need a holiness, a perfection, and the reality is that none of us show up here with that. What do I mean by this? All right, we can think of this righteousness, if this is a new term for you, or maybe it's an old term, but we can think of this righteousness in the way that you might think of cleanliness in your home. I hope that didn't send some people into panic mode. But cleanliness in your home, apartment, room, whatever it might be. Right? Some of us are, are, are of the type where we're not too particular about, about being, you know, cleaning everything to its T, except when company comes over. And then we'll get things straightened up, we'll polish up, we'll clean, we'll dust, we'll vacuum. Uh, but after that company leaves, right, or we have people over, then we you know, might just kind of let things go a little bit. There are, though, others who um, clean regularly, and it's a big part of their life, and just they do a good job with it. And um, would probably say that, you know, on any given day, you can show up in my, my house, my apartment, my room, and, and I can promise you that it is uh, acceptable, it, it is clean, it is spotless. Well, no matter how well you clean, now we all know this, no matter how often you do it, whether you do it once in a while for company to come over or whether you are consistently polishing the brass, right, nobody here would agree with the statement that, oh, th this is spotless. This is perfection. In other words, what the Bible tells us is that God requires a cleanliness. It requires a spotlessness, right? Not of our homes or apartments, but in our hearts. And to the degree that we attend to that and how well we think we keep it, it doesn't matter because there's always going to be something there that you can't fix, that you can't get at. This is what righteousness is. This is the requirement for us. And so this would be a sort of an assumption of the text. And what Jesus is saying is that all of us come in here um, not passing the glove test. You know, if your life and death hung on it, right, the best that you could clean your place, would you let somebody come in with a white glove and, and if they were to find a speck of dust, it's over. Nobody would do that. This is the expectation that Jesus is speaking into and the reality for those that are listening, some people think that they can do this. Some people think that they can live a life that is spotless. And Jesus is saying, you haven't begun to enter this kingdom because you don't know your need. No one. 
No one can do this. And what Jesus is saying here is, do you know that? Do you know that? Do you know you can't completely clean yourself up to the standard of what is required? That you need something outside of yourself to make you clean? Do you know that? Because if you do, Jesus says, I have good news for you. There's a kingdom for you. Those are the type of people, actually, that my kingdom belongs. And friends, this is how Jesus starts what I will argue is one of the most famous sermons in all of literature. People who don't claim the Christian faith know about this sermon. We've got the golden rule painted or embroidered on a pillow somewhere in our house. We don't know where it comes from. It comes from the mouth of Jesus. What he is saying at the beginning of his sermon, his platform for his kingdom is that this kingdom is for those who know they need saving. So the first question this attitude asks us is, can you admit your need for that? Spiritually speaking, or are you someone who thinks that they have the spiritual resources to fix themselves so as to be acceptable for God? Because Jesus is saying, only those who can admit their poverty of spirit, who need me, they get my kingdom. This is why he calls them blessed. Second, this moves to verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. If the poor in the spirit wasn't countercultural enough, the second characteristic might just get you to turn the TV off if this were a candidate, candidate uh, debate here. Um, one thing that was not valued in Jesus' day and age, and I'm not sure that it's valued much even today, is holding up a mourning attitude as virtue. And what does Jesus mean by this? Well, once we have confronted or been confronted with our spiritual poverty, our neediness, those who belong to this kingdom then mourn and they grieve their sin. In other words, Christians are people who don't just shrug off their sin, right, and act like it doesn't matter or, you know, it's not that big of a deal, nor do they actually fixate on it as if it defines them. Rather, they are brokenhearted over it. And Jesus says that those who are brokenhearted over it, who mourn it, are blessed and happy. Why? Because they'll be comforted. Which is a promise of something that the king will do for them. But this is tough because it's one thing to admit your need. We don't like to do that necessarily, and certainly not in public. It's difficult to admit that you lack something. But it is another to be asked to sit with that. To not push it away, but to spend time with it, to grieve it. Because Jesus is actually saying that the more that you respond appropriately to your own spiritual poverty, the better you will be because to do so actually makes you, what, more human. There are things in this world that are good and right to celebrate. Weddings, graduations, baptisms, would-be cookouts. We need to celebrate those things. But there are also things that we need to grieve and mourn. And while everybody in here just thought of all the things outside of themselves and in this world and in our culture that we need to grieve and mourn, and and I'm sure those things exist, Jesus is asking you to look here, and he is asking, are you grieving and mourning the things of your own heart? Your greed, 
my greed, your envy, my envy, the way you covet, the way I covet. Jesus is saying being human is understanding both of those occasions. Do you mourn over your poverty of spirit? One of the hardest things about being a parent, I think, is knowing that you are not just responsible for these new human beings that come home with you from the hospital um, for their physical care, but you're responsible for their spiritual care, care. certainly until they turn 18. I don't know if that's the way it works. <laughs> but, um, but here's what I mean by that. All of us have either had that child or we've been that child where you have clearly done something wrong, right? Everybody saw it. You ran and you pushed your sibling or your, your somebody in the back and it threw them into the wall and they're hurt and they're crying and you're just standing there like, I didn't do anything. I, we've all been there. We've all done that, right? And what's hard about it is you can't make someone care about how they've treated someone. And you don't know this until you have kids, really, right? Because you're just sort of watching it from a distance, and you're actually judging that parent for not disappointing their kid. But that's another story. But when you have kids, especially when you bring that first child home, uh, it, it's, it's a weighty issue of like, wait, wait, wait a minute here. I need you to care just a little bit about the tears pouring out of your sister's face because of what you did to them. I told May I would tell this story, so just, just, just for that. When May, our oldest, um, we, we, you know, we were just becoming, beginning to be new parents, um, she would never apologize. And as the pastor who, right, will attack things all theologically with, with three and four-year-olds, that's a good idea, we'll just explain this theologically, um, tried to sit down with her and just say, well, May, you know, you should care about hurting your sibling or a friend. We can name a hundred different situations. And they're crying, right? they're hurt. To which she would say, well, I, I, I can't do that. I can't admit that I did anything wrong because, well, that's embarrassing for me. And at this point, as a father, I'm thinking, I have just already failed. This is, this is over. Um, but she would go on to talk about how the act of actually saying I'm sorry makes me feel embarrassed, and so I just don't want to say it. And I'm literally thinking, are, are, you know, I've got a psycho living with me. Is she going to come into my room in the middle of the night, and what is she going to, what is this? No empathy whatsoever. Now, she's getting better by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, but we might say, well, hey, you know, we expect that in kids, not adults, right? It takes time to sort of learn empathy, to learn mourning, the things that you have, the way you've wronged other people. And that might be true, but it certainly doesn't mean that as an adult that we have learned to mourn and grieve our sin. And in fact, I would argue that as we get older, something else can happen. We can do a great job of learning how to escape and numb ourselves from our sin, distract ourselves, get busy with things so that we don't have to deal with the way that we're treating or neglecting other people. And as hard as that might be for some of us in this room to even just start paying attention to at this point, listen to the king of this kingdom saying, grieve that, sit with it, for you will be comforted. I will comfort you. See, this is why nobody is signing up for this kingdom. The greatest example 
in the Old Testament of what it looks like to mourn well, it would be David, I think, in Psalm 51, after his sins towards Uriah and Bathsheba, right, and everyone else that this impacted. David writes this in Psalm 51, verse 1 to 4, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. And then in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me, and here it is, against you and you only. Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? David is not saying that he has not sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah and all those affected by this, but he is recognizing the place that this sin, who this sin impacts the most. Who grieves this the most? It's the God of Uriah and the God of Bathsheba. This is mourning one's sin. And Jesus says the person who does that is blessed, is happy, because they will be comforted. So do you mourn your sin? Jesus is asking. Do you grieve it? And not in a way that makes you a pessimistic person or a sad person all the time because this is, this is the, you know, the glass is half full. This is all that the Christian life is because it's not. Next week we get to the actions. But this is the need. Do you grieve that? Or the older you get, maybe a better way to ask it, who are you becoming? Somebody who understands the weight of that and whose heart it breaks or are you becoming somebody who is a master of escaping it, of numbing themselves to the thousand different distractions that come our way? Jesus invites you to not run from it, but to actually sit down with it and mourn it. And this leads to our last point, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What is meekness? Often meekness is associated with gentleness or even weakness, but that's not accurate. Meekness is a type of humility. It actually, it's actually being able to look in the mirror and it's actually able to have a right view of oneself. We used to talk about this in terms of uh, skinny mirrors or going to um, you know, a circus and going through and seeing the mirrors that distort your body. But actually, you know, a real mirror that would give you a real understanding of who you are. Today, we could probably talk about filters. So this is a non-filtered picture of yourself for that's worth. Right? But we might say it, and know, it, you know, being meek is knowing who you are, which also means knowing who you are not. When my kids would ask me, Daddy, what did you want to be when you grew up? I told them I wanted to be a professional basketball player. And I know what you're thinking right now. Did Ryan play in the NBA? I didn't. Just want to get that out there. I did not play in the NBA. That wasn't me. Um, no, but I did have to say bye-bye to that dream a long time ago. And some of you might say, oh, that's sad. You shouldn't let go of your dreams. And I would just say uh, it was good and right to get rid of this dream, only to go find new dreams to have and to hold on to. Um, as a matter of fact, like once I got into high school and I actually did make the varsity team, knowing I was not going to play in college, surprisingly enough, made me a much better player because I began to what? Play within my limits. And coaches really love players who do that, who play within their limits. It actually made me someone who could think about others and not just myself because I knew who I was and I knew who I wasn't. Meekness is saying, are, are you willing to play within your limits? Do you know who you are? And just as there is a physical component to that, right, there's a spiritual one as well. And that is for those who, who know that they need something to restore their spiritual poverty, that they can't fix, right? 
there's not a solution uh, within themselves, but the solution only comes outside of themselves. And then, then for those who mourn and grieve that sin, right, what, what is that, where does that lead us? It leads you to, to understanding who you are, of having a right view of yourself, of meekness. It is the result of these first two attitudes. It is the result of the one who says, I am poor in spirit and I am needy. It is the result of the one who mourns and grieves that sin. Because when we move into a place where we understand who we are and who we're not, what does Jesus say to us next? Now you are ready to be in a place where you can actually hunger and thirst for the thing that'll make you whole. You see that? That you would hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? The, the, the spotlessness that we don't have, right? this is what sends us back to him. The only place that we can go and be made whole and righteousness that does not come from ourselves, but from the king of this kingdom, which is Jesus. And there is a, here, right? If there's a crowning virtue that leads to blessedness, to happiness, it is this one because it is what sends you in the direction of the only one who can heal you, who can make you whole, who can satisfy that need. And friends, this is where Jesus begins his sermon. This is where it comes back to you. Because the Christian is not just someone who can acknowledge their neediness. A lot of us in here can do that well. The Christian is not just someone who actually grieves or mourns their, 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 their neediness, their sinfulness. The Christian is not somebody who can say, you know what, I know who I am and I know who I'm not. The Christian is someone who then what? Knows the direction that that sends you. And that place is only Jesus. And I think by way of beginnings, is, is, is that what is indicative of your life as a Christian? Or are we on this treadmill of sorts where we are sort of eddying off trying to solve the problem on our own? I know, I know I'm lacking. I know I don't have everything figured out. Uh, I know there's this poverty of spirit in me, but I'm going to fix it. And then Jesus is going to be ready to receive me. I bet you if I just grieve this enough, if I just show people that I'm really broken and sad over my sin, then, then this, this will allow Christ to be happy with me. Because after all, I don't deserve anything with, with what I have done in my life. We're haunted by the shame and the guilt of our life. Some of us even more coming through that. I know who I am. I know the Bible. All that stuff is great, friends. But what Jesus is saying is he begins his sermon about what his kingdom looks like is those who enter are the ones who go through this and, and, and follow where it leads them which is back to him, the place where only the hunger and, and the thirst for righteousness can be satisfied. And here's the deal. We are never leaving this part of the sermon. And that's Jesus' intention. Because guess what he's gonna do here in, in a couple of weeks? He's gonna talk about murder. And he's gonna talk about how if you have been angry in your heart, you are liable for judgment, just as if you had murdered somebody. I don't know about you, but that doesn't make a lot of sense to me but it also feels like it crushes me. How can I do this? Let's come back to our poverty of spirit. Let's grieve the ways we've been angry. Let's see who we are and let's let that allow us to run back to the place where we are filled. And that can only be one place, Jesus. So by way of landing the plane here, it's a little long, sorry about that, introductions tend to be long. Where, friends, 
is your neediness sending you this morning? If you, do you even have a place to be honest with that about? Like, do, you, do you even have a place where you can say, you know what, I am pretty needy. I'm pretty desperate. But I feel like everywhere I go, whether it could be here at Wallace, it could be in churches, other places, classrooms, work, I've got to put on this mask and cover it up, and I don't know where to take this stuff. Where is your neediness sending you? Let me point us to this table that we're about to go to, the one place that it should be sending you, to Jesus. That would create in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, not a not, not, not from ourselves, but from him. Because for those who can say that, there is a kingdom for you. And the best part of this kingdom, although it has a lot of great stuff in it, I'm sure, is the king. And friends, let me say this. You can trust this king. You can trust his platform, if I could be so bold to say that. Why? Because this king came not in strength, but he came what? In weakness. He came to die for you so that you could be offered this freedom, this salvation freely. And it's for you, for anyone who's willing to be weak and to admit their need for a Savior. Would that be us? Would that be us? Next week, we'll see what this does to us, where this sends us, who this makes us. But for now, may our neediness, as we sit with it, send us to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word to us. Pray now that as we digest the words of Jesus, our King, as he talks about things that might sound countercultural to us even. But I think if we're honest, it sounds like it's, it is things that are too good to be true, that you would remind us over and over, no, that this is true, this is real, this is the place that I have prepared for you. And so would you create in us over and over this understanding of who we are, this need. Would you show us the places where we need you? And we don't leave this place, that we rest in our King and his work on our behalf over and over and over again. Would you do this for your people, as you say, that they might be blessed? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.